friends? All right, let's try that one again. Good morning, friends. Ah, thank you. You are friends. Thank you. And happy Father's Day to those of you who are fathers. Uh, and many of us have fathers and father figures that have spoken a lot into our life. And uh, yesterday, Pastor Steph and the team took off. Actually, they are still in transit. They had some delays along the way. So they're still traveling. You can just imagine how fresh they're going to feel when they arrive. Now, Steph started a series on the Holy Spirit a number of weeks ago. And uh, it's my job to follow up with some of the things that he's been sharing and carry on that series. Now, I want you to imagine trying to write a manual on someone that you're very close to, whether it's your father, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a friend or a brother and sister. Can you imagine how difficult it is to write a manual that says, this is how that person is, this is how they will always respond, this is when this situation happens, this is what they're going to do. That's a difficult thing to do, isn't it? Because you're dealing with a person. You're not dealing with a textbook case. You're not de dealing with a topic or a situation. You're dealing with a person. And in a sense, that's the challenge that we have as we speak about the Holy Spirit, is that he's not just a force. He's just not a power, but he is a person who has an identity. And he is unique in that way. So as we get to know him, we find deeper and deeper levels connected to him. And we understand them in ways that we never understood him before. And that's the goal as we speak about the Holy Spirit in this series. Now over the next three weeks, I want to cover three pictures of the Holy Spirit. This week we're going to take a look at how he is like water. Next week, how he is like wind. And then the final week... Uh, how he is like fire. So this week, we're talking about water. And water carries a powerful picture with it. And especially if you were one of Jesus' listeners when Jesus was here speaking, the picture of water was powerful because that Jewish history and background had a strong connection to the pictures around water. And it starts off right in Genesis chapter 1, where the earth was formless and void, and water covered the earth, and the Spirit of God hovered above it, and from all that created the world. When you think of water in the Old Testament, a lot of people would think of David the shepherd, and how he spoke of, of the great shepherd leading us beside still waters, which spoke of the peace that the presence of God would bring. And it's interesting that the covenant that was established, we call it the Mosaic Covenant because it came through Moses, that the Mosaic Covenant had a strong connection to water. See, Israel, to be God's people, were not to be like any other nation. They were to worship 
the one true God. They were supposed to be separate from all the nations that served all kinds of gods. Gods of water, gods of earth, gods of fire, gods of fertility, gods of power, gods of sorrow, all kinds of gods. But the Israelites were to worship only one God, and that way they were to stand out from everyone else. Now God made a covenant with him, and a covenant has two sides, has obligations on two sides. Now the obligations to the Jewish nations was this. They had to obey all the regulations that God set out. There was regulations for their food, certain kinds of food and to be eaten in certain kinds of ways. Certain kinds of clothes to wear or not wear. Certain holy days. And all kinds of regulations. Some of those regulations, as you read them in the Old Testament, seem just a little bit weird. Why would God make that a regulation? And God rarely explains there why he chose certain things. But these things were supposed to be regulations that set them apart. And it was their part of the covenant that they would recognize these holy days, that they would give certain kinds of of celebrations and tithes to the Lord. So that was the Israelites' side. God's side would be this. I will bring you to a land flowing with milk and honey, and I will make it produce wonderfully. I will send the rains and the waters to cover your land so that it will always produce. And it will be so abundant that once every seven years, you don't have to plant. That you will have so much bounty the other years, you could take a year off. And every seven sevens, you get another one, the year of Jubilee. In fact, the land is going to be so bountiful that you could take two years off. Wouldn't that be kind of nice? Talk about sabbaticals. Talk about time off. We have so much stored up. And God would do all of this because that's the two sides. But if the nation of Israel did not keep their side, then God would withhold the rains and turn that land of plenty into a field of rocks. And so every time the nation of Israel in the Old Testament faced times of drought, it was supposed to be their time to start searching their hearts to say, where have we left God? How have we not obeyed him? Where are his blessings? The blessings have left because we have left God. And so that Old Testament connection between the rains and the produce and the land producing was very closely connected to their own side of the covenant. Now, in Malachi chapter 3, God puts it this way as he's trying to encourage the nation of Israel to come back to him. And he says, come back to me. Bring the tithes into the storehouse. And I will pour out that picture of water. I will pour out a blessing so huge you won't even be able to hold it. See, the picture of pouring out and the picture of water 
and the blessings connected to that was a strong storyline that was intended to go through all the story of the Old Testament. And sometimes we've tried to bring that story into the New Testament, into our lives, and we sometimes think, if I'm not doing well financially, does that mean I've somehow left God? And the connection is not the same, because we don't have that same kind of covenant. And that's what makes the Old Testament story very unique from the New Testament story. Because in the New Testament, we realize that God's Spirit is still with us, even during the difficult times. So in the Old Testament, when Israel was going through some of those difficult times, when they had turned away from God, but God was trying to bring them back and paint a future for them which was so unique. In the book of Joel chapter 2, God says this to his people, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And in those days, I will pour out. You see the picture of pouring out. I will pour out my spirit upon even servants, men and women alike. And the unique thing in this prophecy was this. Instead of God working only through prophets or certain holy men or people of stature that God was predicting a time that he would pour out this blessing on all people whether you were a man or a woman whether you were a servant or whether you were a king and that it would be available to all people this pouring out would be on and in all people And that was something that God was pointing at. So that it wasn't just about serving God, but it would be about having a new life within us. Which speaks very closely to the picture that's painted in the New Testament of what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That picture of water. Last week we had a baptism here. And the idea of baptism is to take someone and submerge them, immerse them in that picture of water so that they are completely flooded with water, at least on the outside, right? And then they would arise to new life. And the picture of being baptized with the Holy Spirit is that pouring out of God's Spirit that completely floods every part of our life. Jesus was referring to this in John chapter 4 when he spoke to the woman at the well and he starts that conversation kind of uniquely. uh, Lady, can you give me a drink of water? And she says, what? You're a man? You're asking me for water? And Jesus carries on that conversation talking about the water and he says these words, everyone who drinks of this water will become thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the idea is that God's Spirit, what Jesus was going to give us, was something that would well up a new kind of life within us 
something very unique that would not just depend upon us being dedicated, committed, obedient Christians, but it would stir something within us beyond our abilities that God would start a new life within us. And this new life and this river and these wells of living water is a picture that even follows into the book of Revelation when it speaks of the new heaven and the new earth and the rivers of living water that flow out of the throne. And you can read about it in Revelations 20 and 21 in that last section of Revelations. In John chapter 7, Jesus was standing amongst a crowd and he decides to just stand up and make, a, it's kind of like a street preacher uh, proclamation and this is what he says. Anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from the heart of anyone who believes in me. And this is the little editorial that John adds to it. And he says, when Jesus said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. See, Jesus' intention and God's goal for us is not simply to place our cognitive faith in him, it's not simply that we begin following a new religion and I am now dedicated to something new because that's all my side. What Jesus' intention is this, is that I will start something new in you. That I will start a new kind of life in you, one that maybe you never even expected. I'm going to begin stirring something that's like living water. It's like a wellspring that keeps bubbling up and that never runs out. And it just keeps giving and it keeps stirring. And those of us who know Jesus know that this is the truth. And we put it all together. That when you place your faith in Jesus, something deeply internal changes. God comes to dwell within you, his child, so that he is not just with you, but that he is in you. And that's that unique, uh, unquenchable life that wells up from within and changes every part of you. See, it's not just that we follow a religion. It's not that we just have a belief. It's not that we are just followers of the way. Those all, all those things are true. But what God does inside of us, what he places inside of us, is a new kind of life that does not come from us. It's something beyond our expectations even. We talk about this as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Like a flood, he comes into our life, filling every corner, changing us, stirring us, doing his thing. Sometimes, even when we resist it, he's still doing 
our faith. Now, sometimes we ask the question, so who is really inside of us? And if you're a theologian and like to have everything lined out and organized uh, in, in a fashion so that it makes sense, this is the part that will drive you crazy. Because while we speak of God as the Trinity, the three in one, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they are separately unique, yet all one. Okay, and that's the complicated part of it. But when we start reading the New Testament, and we start reading who is inside of us, we see this, that the Holy Spirit is inside of us, or sometimes the Scripture refers to it, that the Spirit, just the Spirit. But sometimes Paul refers to it as Jesus is in me. Sometimes he refers to it as the Spirit of Jesus or the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Son or the Spirit of God. And these terms seem to be, well, some of us might think that the terms are just a little bit sloppy. But in a sense, since God is not just three, that he is all one, it's completely practical to interchange some of those terms because it is God who is in us. It's that life, it's that flood, it's that spring, that wellspring of God that is stirring within us. And so this is the part that we theologians have to just kind of accept that the lines are not very clearly drawn because the terms seem to be interchangeable sometimes. So it's the Spirit's work in us that's described. It's Jesus' life within me that's described as that wellspring, that water, that spring of living water. So if that's the case, if within every single believer there is a, a well of water that's bubbling up, kind of like an artesian well that just keeps going and going. How do I relate to this wellspring? How do I connect to it? What's it doing in me, and how should I respond? So when I think of how we respond to that wellspring within us, I think of three different things, and we'll remain with the the water picture and think of it this way number one you could be a paddler and to tell you the truth there are some paddler qualities in my life and the paddler you know if you've ever been on one of these paddle boats you've gone out in the lake and lots of times you can rent one of these for so much a half an hour and a bunch of you get in and uh, how many here have ever gone in one of these little paddle boats Oh, yeah. It's amazing how hard you can paddle and how slow you go, right? And it's amazing when you try to turn. You turn one way and nothing seems to happen. You turn the other way and you're going the wrong way. And you're kind of going, and which is why people are just kind of going all over, crashing into each other, and you try to have these races, and it turns into, wow, that was fun, but we didn't really go anywhere, right? Lots of effort. Very little control, very little progress. 
And there are some times that my faith and the, res- the way I respond to God's Holy Spirit within me is like a paddler. And I guess you could say that the theme of being a paddler is this. That pleasing God depends upon my effort. I'm out there paddling and working and trying to get that water churning. But it's not very efficient. And it's hard to control. And sometimes I wonder, what is the point? You know, for those of us who see our faith and the way we relate to God in this way, we might think of portions of Scripture that tell us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And so I need to work. And I'm always thinking about, how can I please God? It's like God needs to be pleased or appeased. I've got to somehow make God happy. Therefore, I have to paddle, paddle, paddle. I train myself and I work at spiritual disciplines and I give my money and I serve and I work and I do more and hopefully I'm pleasing God. I hope he's pleased. I don't know. Maybe I need to work a little harder. Which is the problem of being a paddler because you never know, am I working hard enough? And you know, in Jesus' day, there was a group of people who were the paddlers. We call them the Pharisees. They developed a whole structure in order to please God. We need to follow these rules. We need to dress a certain way. We need to keep a certain code. We need to have this structure. We have to do it just right. And if we do it just right, God will be very pleased with us. And they developed these rules and the dress codes and all the structures. The unfortunate thing about being a Pharisee or being a paddler is that it leaves you with a cold, inflexible faith. Because you start thinking, this is the way it has to be done. What are you doing? You are not fitting in. That's what you're doing is not faith. That's not the way God likes it. And we develop those unwritten rules about how we act, about how we dress, about how church is done, about the expectations that God has, and about how I serve him. And I keep wondering, Lord, is it enough? Maybe I need to work a little bit harder. And I sometimes see that paddler within me, that it's about, you know, putting my head down and working a little bit harder. For those of you who, like me, see some of the paddler in you, I'd like to encourage you with these words. Allow room for the Spirit of God to change you from the inside. It's not just about you developing habits and structure. But it's about inviting God to say, Lord, you are the one who's really doing this. And I'm inviting you to stir in me. I mean, there's that wellspring within me. Let it well up. 
Let it change me from the inside. So I'm not just changing my actions, but you are actually changing my heart. And so for those of us who paddlers, we need to think of what God wants to do in our life. Well, there's a second picture, and that's what we call the drifters. You know, when I was a child, I had the stories of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn read to me, and, and the, the pictures of adventure were so strong. I can remember when uh, my parents purchased a house uh, on a, a, an acreage along the river, and uh, one of my first things to do was to build a raft, something like the one you see. Take a bunch of logs, nail them together. My idea was, I'm going to hop on this raft and float down the river and have all these adventures. And I soon learned that logs don't float quite the way you imagine they're going to float. But with a raft, you have no paddles, you have no control in a sense, you drift along where the current takes you. And in some ways, you're disengaged from the whole process. Where you see things go by on the bank, but you don't engage with them. You can't stop and engage. You're just drifting. And there are some of us, in a sense, that the way we're, we relate to God is like drifting. Well, if God wants to do it, I guess God will do it. But the motto becomes this. There is nothing that I can do, or maybe there's nothing that I am willing to do to grow in Jesus. And so I let happen whatever is going to happen. And unfortunately, I see some of the drifter in me from time to time. There's nothing I can do to change this. I guess I won't be involved. If God wants to change my heart, well, that's up to him, but I'm kind of happy with the way things are. In fact, some of us, even because of the way we give our heart to Jesus, we feel like, well, I've given my heart to Jesus and now it's all complete. All I have to do now is drift along and someday at the end of my life when I die, I will just keep drifting and go on to heaven. But in between, there is nothing that connects me to Jesus. Sometimes we feel like, well, there's nothing I can do because I'm a fallen, sinful person. And if God is going to change me, it must be all him. And there are some times in our theology when we take a look at things like sanctification, which is God's process of changing us to be like Jesus, we think, well, that's all God. I have nothing to do with it at all. And while there is some truth in that, what happens is that sometimes I become that drifter where I'm not even interested in what God is doing. I'm not concerned. I'm not engaged. And if I'm going to grow, God's going to have to bring the right people into my life. In fact, sometimes those of us who are drifters, we expect our growth to come from our small group leader or our teachers or our preachers 
or the people in our life. And we say, if my teacher was a better teacher, I would be growing. But since I don't feel like I'm growing, there must be something wrong with my church or my community or my pastor or my, my, my small group leader or whoever it is because it's their responsibility, not mine, to make me grow. And unfortunately, I see a lot of this in me. And sometimes we think, well, if the people that God brings into my life were better leaders and mentors, I would be growing. If my husband was a better spiritual leader, if the person I look up to and I meet with on a regular basis would challenge me more, then I would be growing. But the motto of the drifter is, it's somebody else's responsibility, not mine. For those of us who see some traits of the drifter in our lives, I'd like to say this. Look for ways to collaborate with what the Spirit is trying to do in your life. What is God trying to do? Where is God stirring? Is there something that I need to take responsibility for so that this wellspring that's, that's coming up within me, that I do something with it? That this life that is in there And it is there, Scripture tells us it is, but that I'm allowing it to change me. And I'm cooperating with what God is doing. So the third picture that comes along with the water and how we relate to God is that of a surfer. I didn't fully realize this, but surfing has a whole lingo to it. Did you know an ankle buster is a small wave? Somehow that seems to conjure up pictures that make sense. A barney is a novice. If you snake a wave, that means you're sneaking out of your turn and taking a wave from someone else. If you're grubbing, that means you're falling off your board while you're trying to surf. But if you're ripping and shredding, that means you're aggressively surfing. And you're cutting the waves. You know, you can go on Google and research all the lingo and sound like a professional. But that doesn't make you a surfer, does it? (laughs) I've never even been on a surfboard. And if I were ever on a surfboard, I doubted if I'd be on for very long. You see, the surfers are those people who can read the waves, who understand the currents, and through experience, they have a feeling of where the wave is going to crest, where it's going to break, and where you don't want to be when that wave comes down. They read it, they see where it's going, and then they align themselves with where the waves are going. And then they can get on for a great ride. 
See, the, the theory and the, the model of a person who is a surfer is this, is that I am seeking the stirring of the Spirit in my life and aligning myself with the, and I use the word, the hints that I see. Because oftentimes it's so very subtle what God is doing. Oftentimes it's not very obvious at all. And sometimes you're wondering, is God working? Is this God? I'm not sure if it is. This thing that's stirring within me, is that God's spirit or is that just me? But over time, you begin to read those hints and read those signs and you can align yourself with what God is seeking to do. So that when you do something which is slightly dishonest and God's spirit is stirring in your life and say, wait a minute, that wasn't really the way to go. And you listen to that subtle hint, you can go, oh, you're right. I need to change that. And, I, and, and it's amazing those subtle things in our life that God is speaking to that we can miss. But we can either align ourselves with what God is doing or keep doing our own thing. But the surfer is the one who seeks to align himself with what God is doing. See, as a surfer, it doesn't mean that life will always be grand. There are some times that we have to surf and ride through some very difficult times, some deep trials, some sorrow, some loss. There are things in life that are unexpected. There are some great successes, but there are devastating losses. But because we know that this life that's within us is always there. We know that God is always with us in the midst of it. And whether I bail on a ride or whether I hang on for the ride, the life is still there. And he's still trying to teach us and stir in our lives and draw us closer to him. So for those of us who have some surfer traits in us, I'd like to say this. Take encouragement from the changes that you see taking place in your heart because this is how he works. In fact, one of the greatest evidences of being baptized and flooded with the Holy Spirit is the way he changes us is the way he stirs in us, the way he produces his qualities. We call them the fruit of the Holy Spirit. His qualities start becoming part of us. Not only do we change our actions, but he changes our hearts and our motivations and, and our passions and what's important to us. And to take encouragement to say... And to think, thank you, Jesus, for this life that's welling up within me. That even though on the outside life looks a little bit strange, I'm so grateful that you are in me and that you are doing something inside of me beyond my control. So as we sum this up this morning, we think of our three 
the three things that are in our hearts. So that whether you are a paddler, and as a paddler, you think about the things that I can work at, the things that I commit myself to, and how I work, work, work in order to please God. It reminds me that some of that I can let go and let God do his work in me. It's not just me doing spiritual work, but remember that he's doing work within me. For those of us who see some of the drifter parts in our life, and as the drifter, I tend to just kind of sit back and, well, you know, maybe someday I'll change, or maybe someday I'll get involved, or maybe someday something will happen. To take those parts and say, Lord, where are you stirring? And where can I work with you? Where can I partner with you? And for then for those of us who see some of the parts of being a surfer, and, the, and which is that real collaborative work where God is working and I'm cooperating with him, those are the times that even though whether it's on the outside I sense a great deal of success, or even if it's during very difficult times, I can notice that there is real life happening within me. Which in the end is what God's purpose is. God's purpose in your life is to produce that wellspring. That something happens within you that you can't explain. That's what he intends to do. Whether your life is easy or whether it's difficult. Whether you have lots of money or you have no money. Whether you have a big, successful, happy family or not. Whether your family is being destroyed in many ways. That wellspring is what makes the difference. Because it's the Holy Spirit stirring in his child. And it opens the door for you to rip and shred those waves and be on an, an adventure that in some ways is beyond what you ever expected. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I think many of us see both the paddler and the drifter in our lives and we long to see the surfer. But Father, most of all, we're grateful for your spirit that enters into us and stirs us. Father, help us to walk closely with you, to be on this journey and let you change us as we collaborate with you. Thank you for your patience and your endurance and your life that wells within us. In Jesus' name, amen. And this morning, being a communion Sunday, I want to encourage you to take another look at the elements as we, as we take a look at the elements and think of what Jesus does in our life. Oftentimes we take these and we remember 
Jesus. And, with, and that's the intention, that they will re, remind us and stir faith in us. But as we take these elements today, I want you to think of something that Jesus said. Jesus said kind of an odd thing at one time. He says, if you eat of my flesh, he's talking symbolically, if you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, my life will be in you. <laughs> Following that picture of the Holy Spirit, that wellspring of life. And I want to call the servers up this morning. And as they do, I want to encourage you to think, Lord, how are you filling me? How are you inspiring your life within me? I want to give you thanks. And, and as you come forward this morning and take the bread and take the cup, and as you ingest it, may it be a symbol to you of taking Jesus in and his life sustaining yours. So this morning, as we do communion, just want to let you know some of the mechanics of how we do it. We're going to invite you to come forward. All of you who know Jesus or want Jesus, I encourage you to come forward. You can come to any one of these tables, or you could come to the kneeling benches and receive communion here. If you're up in the balcony, we want to invite you to come down and partake with the rest of us. Or there are some self-serve tables up there. If you wish, you can use them up there. That's fine. But as you come forward and take it, remember, Jesus' life living in you, that wellspring of life that can never die. For those of you who have mobility issues, we're going to come around and you can just raise your hand and we'll serve you where you are and there's no problem with that. We're going to ask Pastor Joe to pray and lead us in prayer and then we'll invite you forward. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, we want to start thanking you for inviting us again to this meal of remembrance. I would like to thank you for we are here by your grace, for you have bought all our tickets here by going to the cross and dying for our sins. Lord Jesus, we also come together united in faith acknowledging that you are our Savior. It is you that saved us from our sin and death and that you've given us the spirit to live the eternal life. We come together united in love because you loved us and you died for us and you have asked us to love one another and to forgive one another. <clears throat> Lastly, we also come together as a body united in hope as we take this cup and this bread to remember that you have died for us, as well as we united in hope that we will proclaim that you will come for us again. In your name we pray, amen. We want to invite you forward.